Awesome. Well, good evening, everybody. And like DJ said, Happy New Year's Eve, New Year's to you and to your family. Hope you guys had a great Christmas uh, with your family. Hopefully everyone is healthy and, uh, and you got everything you wanted this year. I know I did, so that's a, a great thing. Hey, I wanted to, uh, as we kind of jump into this evening, let you know that one of the things that we really believe in here at Grace Church, you probably hear us talk about it often, is that we really, really believe in investing in the next generation of leader. And, uh, and so because of that, because it's a strong value that we hear we have here at Grace Church, I wanted to introduce you to someone tonight, someone that maybe you've seen around and maybe haven't been formally introduced to, uh, but Tommy Hutchinson is actually going to be sharing with us this evening. Uh, Tommy, just a little bit about him, he's actually been on Grace Church staff here at the Medina East Campus for about three months, and he helps primarily with creative arts ministry, uh, very talented in many different ways, and so you've probably seen Tommy and his family around, maybe he's part of your life group if you haven't got a chance to meet him, uh, but Tommy uh, had his undergrad, got his uh, undergrad degree at Cedarville University and also has his uh, his postgraduate work, his, uh, his um, seminary work at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. And so we asked him if he'd be willing to come and just share with us this weekend, kind of from his heart. And so I would like it if you would please just uh, w- uh, join me in welcoming, kind of giving a warm Medinese welcome uh, to Tommy Hutchinson. So here he is. Thanks, man. Well, hello. Good evening and go Bucks. Um, I'm very proud. It's, I think this is the most Ohio State paraphernalia that I've seen at a, sun, at a Saturday evening service, and it's great. So we're going to be here for about three hours. Um, you will miss the start of the game. That's why you came to this service. No, I'm just kidding. A um, little bit about myself. As Tony mentioned, my name is Tommy. I'm married to my beautiful wife, Sarah. I forgot to put a picture. She'll remind me to do that later. Um, my beautiful wife, Sarah, we've been married about five years, and we have a little two-year-old named Hazel, who you will probably, if you're around on Sunday mornings, you will hear more than you will see. Because um, she is very loud and very awesome. But that's a little bit about who I am. Um, I've been on staff since October. It's been a blast. I get to work with Seth and Tony, which is a lot, a lot of fun. Um, so I got a question for you. Have you ever been a part of a bad team? Now, now let me reiterate this. I'm not talking Cleveland Browns bad. I'm not talking about losing every game bad. Okay, they won one game. So they're not the worst team ever. We can give the Lions that credit. Um, but have you ever been on a team that just doesn't get along? I'm talking about the teams, you know, that like you're fighting or the person who's one-upping you all the time on that team or that person that you just, when you're around them, you're just like, I don't want to be here. Like that kind of person. In college, my roommate, his name was Rob. Um, We roomed for a year together. Great guy, still good friends. He lives in New Jersey. But I walked into the dorm room in December towards the end of the semester and I walk in and looked at the floor and went, we need to vacuum. And he looked at me and goes, what do you mean we? And I said, well, I haven't vacuumed all semester and it doesn't look like it has been done. He goes, oh, no, I've vacuumed. You haven't. And I was like, what do you mean? He goes, yeah, you see this line? This is your half that hasn't been done, and this is my half that has been done, so here's the vacuum. Um, needless to say, we had a nice little fight about that where he was really kind to make sure he vacuumed the whole place after that, and I never did it again. No, I'm kidding. I actually ended up doing it the whole next semester as payback. But I say that not we got along. But there were times when we didn't like to get along. In fact, you, and when, I, when some of you may be thinking of the friend, the roommate, the neighbor that you just don't like, and you think, man, I wish I could get along with them. I wish I could be in unity, be in harmony with them. And this passage that we're going to talk about today does a really good job at laying out a framework and giving us some great principles on how you can start to build that unity and that friendship back. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to open up our Bibles. If you've got your smartphone, you can open that up. We're going to be in Philippians 2. 
Um, if you don't have a Bible in front of you, there should be a black hardcover Bible. Um, we are on page 819. Look, if you don't have a Bible and you're here, take that with you. That's our gift to you. And if you read it and you've got questions from it, we would love to talk to you, either ourselves or the person that came with you. We would love to be able to get the opportunity to talk about it. So what we're going to do is we're going to dive into Philippians 2. Now, we're jumping into the middle of the book. So let me give you a little bit of background on what's going on here. It's written by a guy named Paul. Paul um, was this man who, um, at the start of his career, was a Christian killer, literally. He killed Christians. And he had this God-shaped midlife crisis that only Jesus could do. And by the end of it, he ended up being a church planter and one of the founding kind of fathers of the church movement. So there's this guy. He's in jail. He's on his deathbed. And one of the churches that he was helping out in Philippi, where we get the name Philippians, heard that he was in jail and sent a messenger to him saying, hey, we're here not doing well. We just want to know we're praying for you if there's anything we can do. And Paul was so moved that he wrote a letter back to them saying, thank you so much. Um, he not only wrote a letter back to them, he told them all the things they were doing wrong. Um, I'm sure all of us would love to get that letter from the person that just came to visit us. Um, he gets this letter, and in this letter, he's telling the church in Philippi, hey, you guys aren't getting along. You're a hodgepodge of Jews and Gentiles, but you really don't like each other. In fact, he goes as far in chapter 4, later on in the book, he calls out two people by name and tells them, hey, you and you, yeah, get over yourself, start liking each other because you love Jesus and you love me. That would be like Jeff Bogue, the senior pastor of All of Grace, coming and go, hey, Seth, hey, Tony, yeah, you too, get over yourself. That's what's going on in this, this book. There's a lot of disunity, and that's where we pick up this passage. So we're in chapter 2. I'm going to read all 11 verses. It's a lot, so just track with me, um, and then we will dive in to some stuff after it. So here we go. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ... If any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the spirits, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same mind, being in one spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interest of others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. We're in verse 6. Who, this is being Jesus, being in very nature God, did not consider quality with God something to be used for his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant. Being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, verse 9, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every, name, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I read that and feel like I need to say amen. And the choir's going to come out and start singing the hallelujah chorus. Like that, that's what I feel like is going on. He's got this huge Paul is written to them. And he goes from this, hey, you need to be like this. And then this massive hymn where it's, you can tell that he's kind of entered into this mode of worship. But he's writing, remember, to a group of people that there's a lot of disharmony going on. There's a lot of things not going right, and he's saying, hey, you need to be united. So we're going to dive in here, going through the first verses, and we're going to look at this idea of how can we be united? How can I correct these friendships or relationships and grow them the way that Paul wants us to? So he starts off with these four checklists, kind of like this common ground is in, in his argument. The first, four, the first one is this. It is encouraged by Christ. Verse 1, 
So he's asking this hodgepodge of people, saying, hey, can you be encouraged by Christ? And those that are sitting there, they're like, yeah, I think Christ can encourage me. All right, cool. Check that one off the list. I can be on the same page with you, Paul. All right, second one. What does he say? Can you be comforted by his love? Can I be comforted by the love of Christ? Let me think about this. Yeah, I can do that. Okay, check mark. I'm on the same page with you again, Paul. All right, third one. What does he say? Share a common spirit. Now, let me explain this one a little bit, because some of your versions that you may have, it may say Holy Spirit. It may say Spirit with a capital S. It may say Spirit with a lowercase s. This is what he's trying to get at. He's getting at this idea of, in both cases, whether he's talking about Trinity, Holy Spirit, or small case, that debate, he's saying, do you have the common goal? Do you have a common attitude together? Another way to describe this, Ohio State's playing in one hour and 27 minutes, and for some of us, we are headed to an Ohio State party. Um, if you root for the team up north, I'm really sorry. They were really close last night. Um, it, it, if you're going to this party, you walk into the room, and what is going on? You have a group of people who are cheering on a football team from behind a TV where they can't hear you, and thousands of miles away, they still can't hear you. You're willing them to victory. Yeah, that's what's going on. Um, so you're rooting them on, but the whole goal of that party is that these people are coming together with the common goal of doing something, that is cheering on this team to victory. That's what he's asking here. He's saying, do you have, as a group of people, a common goal? Is your common goal, your common spirit, that of, and he's, he'd get at it later when he's saying, do you love God and do you love people? That's what he's asking. So, okay, knowing that, all right, Paul, I think I can do that. I can have a common, common goal. And then fourth, his last check mark saying, okay, are you on the same page as me? Can you have a love and compassion for other people? Yeah, I can have a love and compassion. I love actually the, um, <laughs> the original word here is literally, can you have any bowels and compassion? You heard me right, bowels. Okay, we would say when we say you love someone with all of your, okay, I need some help, all of your heart. Yeah, they would say I love you from the very depths of my bowels. Now, a little advice to you husbands, do not put that on the Valentine's Day card. I don't think that's going to go over well. In fact, I don't want you to write, from the depths of my bowel, I, I love you. Um, that's not, what they would view emotions as is coming from so deep within us that it can only spring out. That's a terrible analogy with bowels, but that's what it is. That's the idea. So we would say, love you with all of our hearts. They would say, love you with all of our bowels. I don't know. I don't get it, but that's what it is. So he's getting into this idea also with these four things. If you notice if you think of times when you've been in an argument, a lot of times you want to prove your point. You want to prove that I'm right and you're wrong. And Paul is doing something super subtle with, with getting on the same page. If you notice the first one, what does it say? Encouraged by Christ. He's taking the eyes off of yourself and saying, can you be encouraged by Christ? Then the second one, what does he do? He says, can you be comforted by his love? Again, he's taking the eyes off of them and putting it onto Christ. Third one, sharing a common spirit off of them onto a common goal. Okay, if you get this, the fourth one, off of himself and onto other people loving. There's this natural progression that he's made right here that's saying that when you're, you guys are disunified, and so guess what? You need to get over yourself and look to something else. It's this really subtle thing that he's doing there that's really, really cool. And so he's saying you need to be in unity. Okay, Real quick, I want to, this is a little sidebar, but I want to mention something. Unity is not the same as uniformity. And I, I want to explain this real quick. Um, uniformity says you need to look like me, you need to smell like me, you need to think like me, you need to wear glasses like me, you need to wear the same leather boots as me. I mean, all of that stuff. Unity says we as a group come together and look different, but we have the same goal. 
it's, it's this way. If you walked in the doors and you walked in and you, someone stopped you at the door and said, hang on, hang on, do you have the right dress code? Are you wearing what you're supposed to be wearing? You don't smell right, you need to get out the door. If we did that kind of a thing, that's uniformity, everybody looking the same. What Paul's getting at here is something totally different. He's not saying you need to all look like it. This is a hodgepodge of Jews and Greeks. They don't look the same. They don't smell the same. They don't think the same. But they have a common goal. And their common goal is what leads to their unity. They want to love God and love people. That's the unity that Paul's talking about here. So Paul keeps going on, and he's talking about being in unity. And so you go, okay, Paul, that's, that's great. Be in unity. How, how do we do that? Well, he gives us a, two words, and this is taking out what he says, and it, it, the whole, whole crux of what he's saying can be summed up in two words. So if you don't hear anything else, anything else the whole time, this is, this is what I want you to get. You ready? Hear the two words. Be humble. Be humble. You want to be in unity? You want to live in unity with one another? Be humble. Okay, I want to make sure we get this. Can you say this with me real quick? You ready? Be humble. Humble. Awesome. Okay, I'm expecting next week someone to have a tattoo on their arm, someone to have it on the back of their phone. It's going to be a cover on someone's Bible. He's, he's getting at this idea of he wants us to be humble. In fact, in verse 4, he gives us the definition of humility. Check it out with me real quick. Verse 4, he says this, You do not look to your own interests, but to each of you look to the interests of others. He's saying, like he said in the beginning with those four checklists, look beyond yourself and look to the interests of others. Uh, C.S. Lewis, a well-known author, I think he takes what Paul's trying to say and he, he defines it really well. He says this, Christian humility is not thinking less of yourself. It is thinking of yourself less. Let me say that again. Christian humility is not thinking less of yourself. It is thinking of yourself less. It's this idea in humility of looking past who we are, not self-deprecating ourselves, but to be able to take somebody else and elevate them up. It's this idea of pushing them up and thinking of them more than we think of ourselves. So if that's humility, I think there's a couple pitfalls that we take with humility. There's these extremes that we take it. One of them is self-deprecation, and one of them is self-over-self-appreciation. Here's what I mean by that. Self-depreciation is this idea of, I am so bad at what I do, that if you can do it one iona, you're really, really good. Um, My wife is a great painter. Now, I'm not talking about painting as in, like, artists. I'm talking about we moved into a townhome, and she painted the whole house. And I emphasize she because I am terrible at painting. Like, I mean, you handed me a paintbrush, and I'm going to look at it and go, okay, there's a bucket. I'm assuming this goes on the wall. Like, that, 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 it's that level of bad. She, um, she's a great at edging, like, around windows. Like, she doesn't have to put up painter's tape. I, I love this woman for a lot of reasons, and painting is one of them. It's, just, it's way on the, towards the bottom of the list. There's a lot of other things, but this is on that list. And she handed me the roller, and she said, hey, can you just roll around my edging? So I'm like, this can't be too hard. I can do this. So I take the roller, I roll it in, I go up, and paint flies on my face. And I'm like, what am I doing wrong? She goes, you got to go slower. I'm like, oh, okay. So I go up, and I'm going really slow, and paint is still getting on my face. She laid a tarp underneath me. This is how much faith she had in me. She laid a tarp underneath me, and the tarp went like three or four feet. I missed the tarp by going slow. Paint was flying everywhere. I can't paint to save my life. In fact, if you need someone to paint, don't ask me. I'm happy to help in other ways, but that is not one of them. The self-deprecation and the humbleness would be if somebody asked me, and I went on and went on and went on about how bad of a painter I am. I'm pushing myself down. 
Whereas all I have to do, can you paint? Nope. End of conversation. Humility is saying, no, I'm not good at it, but I want to push, elevate somebody else. So I, I'm not, hear me, I'm not saying my wife's a great painter, go ask her because she will paint your house. But if someone were to ask me, I would say, I know some great painters, and I've got several names that come to mind. Self-deprecation is pushing yourself down. That's not what humility is. Humility is pushing others up. It's elevating them and doing things for their needs. Self-appreciation, you've been around the person that likes to talk about themselves a lot? You've been around the person that will take themselves and elevate themselves over everybody else? Another story about me and my wife. When we got married, <laughs> the first year we were married, my wife's also a great cook. Um, she makes this, I know this is 5.30, 5.40, it's really bad to say talk about food right about dinner time, so I'm going to do it anyways. Um, she makes this chicken dish where she wraps, have you ever had crab rangoons? It's like a crab rangoon in the middle of the chicken and then wrapped in bacon. All right, game over. I mean, you, you can stop it wrapped in bacon, let alone the crab rangoon and everything else. It is unbelievable. It, oh, my mouth is literally watering. Um, she makes it, and it's great. And while we were married, she made this dish for me and put it in front of me. And I took a bite, and I was like, oh, this is so good. You know what would make this better? Let me tell you the look on my wife's face. Are you kidding me? Um, I did that for a year with about every dish she made. What I was doing, this is what I was doing. I was saying, wife, Sarah, you are a great cook. I love you. But I'm better at cooking than you, so let me tell you how you can be better. It was taking myself, pushing her down, and pushing me up. It's this idea of false humility where I was saying, I'm better than you. I want, my intention was, I love you, and I want this to be better. She took it as, you don't like my cooking. That's not humility. That's a self-appreciation. It's making myself bigger. We, we can do this all the time when people ask us, hey, hey, would you like, you can do it with food, you can do it with, you name it, with reading other, my, my daughter, quite frankly, she's a lot of times will do things and I'll say, oh no, let me do it better for you. The idea of humility is thinking of other person's needs where you are pushing them up. So if, if that's humility and it's pushing others up, how do we do that? Well, I would love to give you the five steps and like, this is how you can be humble, um, but Tim Keller a well-known um, preacher, and he's a, he's a ch- guy from a church in uh, New York. He, 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 he reminded me of this. He said, there is no way to begin telling people how to become humble without destroying what fragment of humility they already possess. So with that being said, we're going to call it a night because um, I can't tell you how to be humble. Um, no, I can't give you the five points because it, it's weird because when you start talking about humility, it's as if it doesn't, it doesn't exist. There's this thing from college um, I'm going to say a phrase, and some of you are going to know what I mean, and some of you don't. I just lost the game. Now, some of you are going, what? It's this game that we played in college where the whole point of the game is you don't think about it. And the second you think about it, you lose the game. That's it. It's, it's this really dumb thing that college kids think is awesome. And I'm sure some of you are right now are going, some of you are going, I have no idea what he's talking about. That's okay. The idea is humility is something you can't talk about without losing it. What we're going to do, though, is what Paul does. Paul does this fantastic job of saying, instead of me telling you how to be humble, and he gives this definition. Then he says, I'm going to give you the ultimate example. I'm going to tell you how to love others like Jesus does. How do we love others like Jesus? We look to the ultimate example. That is Jesus. So here we go. So we're going to dive into what what is called the gospel. Now, the gospel, for those of you maybe that haven't heard of it, the gospel is simply good news. It's Jesus Christ. It's his story and what he did. So when we talk about this, if you're not a Christ follower, or if you don't call yourself that man, let me just tell you, we're so glad you're here. I'm thankful you're here. We find it as an honor that you want to come talk to us. If you've got questions, 
about any of this that we're going to talk about, the gospel and stuff, we'd love to talk to you, or the person that came with you would love to talk to you about this. But this is what it is. Paul dives in and gives the greatest example of humility. He said, Jesus, who was fully God, fully God Jesus, became a man. He humbled himself and became a man. He gave up the rights of being God. Now, when you say give up the rights, he's still fully God. The best way I can describe this is tell a story. There's this guy in our past. Um, you may have heard of him. His name's George Washington. Um, he was our first president. And there's a story of when he was in his second term as presidency. This is the guy who led the American army for the Revolutionary War, first president. And during the second term, he was offered to be king. Like the people, the American people said, you know what? We really, even though we don't want to be like England, we still want to have a monarchy like they do. So they said, hey, we want, to have a, we want to make you a king. And George Washington said no. And when he was asked, his reasoning was not because he didn't want to continue to lead. His reasoning was because he saw the bigger picture. He saw that if he became king, it wouldn't be the United States of America. We'd be the United States of Washington. And he, wanted to, he, wanted to, he gave up those rights, went, and became a civilian so that way the American people could, have gone up, could go to where he wanted to be. He, he gave up his rights as president and, frankly, as possible king so that somebody else could get the glory. On a much grander scale, that's what Jesus did. He was fully God who became fully man. And in fact, he became a man, according to Isaiah, that he was not good looking. He was not a guy that in this crowd we'd look at and go, oh, look, hey, there's Jesus. He's really good looking. I want to be like him. Now, there's a lot of reasons why we should be thankful that I am not God. But if I was God... I know that I would come down and I would look a whole lot more like LeBron James in a no-name in a house. Like, I would want to be the guy who's a super athlete, super tall, super buff, like the guy that people, when they look at me, and they go, ooh, I want to be like that guy. Instead, Jesus came knowing that he didn't want people to come to him because of the way he looked, but they wanted to come to him because of what he did. And so he came and became fully man. And in fact, he went even further and became a servant. He was a carpenter. He loved people. This is God who became a servant. Look, if I'm God, I want to be a hero. <laughs> I want to be big. I want to be the, the man. But Jesus said, no, it's better for me to be a servant. And take it one step further, it's better for me to die. It's better for me to die, and not just die, but die an antagonizing death. Look, he lived the perfect life. Jesus lived the perfect life without sin. At the end of his life, he was accused of he was accused, put on trial for something he didn't do. He was sentenced to death. He's standing his trial. Very easily, he could have snapped his fingers. The angels would have shown up, walked out the door, and he'd have been fine. After he was on trial, he was beaten and whipped. Sitting there, arms, scourge of nails, thorns, ripping thresh, lifting thresh right off of him. Could have very, very easily said, I'm done with this. I don't want it. Kept going. He then went and took the equivalent of like a mini telephone pole on his shoulder after being whipped and scourged and carried it to the place where they put nails through his arms and his feet and hung there. Let me just say, this is going to be a really weird sentence to say. Jesus didn't want to do this. In fact, it said earlier that he, in scripture, he was in the garden praying to his father saying, Father, if there is any other way but this, please, please, I don't want to do it. And, but the father said, this is the only way. And so in humility, he said, okay. He then, on the cross, blows my mind. There's a criminals on either side of him. One of them looks at him and says, I know that you are God. Forgive me for what I've done so I can be with you. Look, if I'm God and hanging there, I'd look at him and go, you deserve what you got. 
Instead, what does Jesus say? The ultimate form of humility is he's dying. He looks at this man and says, look, I don't care what you did. You've asked me to forgive you. I forgive you. You will be with me. And he, and he does all of this, and this great thing happens where after he dies, three days later, he comes back to life. And, and in the end of this passage with Paul, he's talk, giving this example of humility, and we get to this, we're like, Jesus is alive. Like, this is awesome. Like, this is, you know, we read the end, and it says this in the passage. It says, in this passage next to every knee, talking about Jesus, will bow in front of him in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord. And look, we like to end the sentence right there. If we ended it right there, Jesus would have done it all and he would have been glorified. And look, he deserves the glory. But there's this little punctuation mark at the end of Jesus Christ is Lord. Do you see it? It's a comma. It's not a period. Because the ultimate form of humility that Jesus did after going through all of this was this. To the glory of of God the Father. Talk about the ultimate form of humility. Here's God who became a man, who became a servant, who died so that we could know the Father. Because he loved the relationship he had with the Father and he wants all of us to experience it. So he was willing to go through all of that so that way somebody else, the Father, could be elevated. This is the example Paul gives. Christ is the ultimate example. Okay, so that's great. So, he's, so how, how do we do this thing called be humble? I mean, Tim Keller told us earlier, there's no way for me to tell you about it. Look, for me, when I was thinking through application and what, what can fit and how do I be humble, I was thinking about my wife. <laughs> I come home from work. Yes, pastors work Monday through Friday. We don't work just on the weekends like some people think we do. Um, and I come home from work and I'm exhausted. I mean, working with Seth, let me tell you, it takes a lot out of you. Um, I'm kidding. He's actually, it's actually really fun to work with him. But I come home exhausted. I come home tired. It's been a long day working, getting things prepped, doing a lot of stuff. And I come in, and the first words out of my mouth most of the time are, hey, hey, babe, I love you. Um, my day was great. I got to talk to so-and-so. Some great things happened, or my day was not good. And then I go, and I do the thing that I want to do. I go and sit on the couch, maybe watch Netflix, eat some dinner, and then go to bed a couple hours later. I was floored when a couple weeks ago my wife looked at me and goes, um, are you going to ask me how my day was? Now, for some of you, you go, what do you mean you were floored? It never registered with me that I had never asked her. Because I thought I had. Well, kind of. She, worked, she was with a two-year-old all day. So I'm like, I know how your day was. You spent the day with a two-year-old. I know what's going on. What I forget is that she's been talking to someone who's had the education of a two-year-old. She wants to at least to talk to someone with an education of at least a three-year-old. <laughs> and so when I walk in the door and she wants to talk, I, it's for me the application is to be reminded of myself to ask her, how was your day, before I even start about my own. Put her needs above my own. I, I see some wives nudging their husbands. You need to stop. Um, look, it's to put their, their needs above my own. And I was talking to somebody, and he said, take it a step further. He goes, it's preach the gospel to yourself before you walk in the door. If the greatest example is Jesus, who is willing to humble himself all the way to death, when you, before you walk in the door, going, okay, Jesus gave everything for me. What can I give for my wife? What can I give for my daughter? Okay, now all of us, we don't know, I don't know what the application is for you. I can't sit here and say, this is what you need to do. For some of you, it's thinking of, how am I loving my neighbors? Am I getting to know them? Am I outside of my bubble? Am I spending time getting to know them so that way they can know the same relationship with Christ? Maybe for some of us, our kids. Maybe for some of us, it's the coworkers. I, 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 I would love to sit here and say, this is the application. The idea is to do stuff so that elevates them and pushes them up because we want them to know God the Father. Um, I'll, I will, um, I'll end with this story. I've got two friends. Their names are Tyler and Brian. Um, they, I knew them from college. 
Um, Brian is this unbelievable vocalist, incredible singer. In fact, he was on The Voice last year. He was one of the final 12. He's from Cleveland. He actually sang the national anthem for the Browns last weekend, so maybe they should have him sing the national anthem every weekend. Um, he, 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 he was there. And Tyler is this incredible sound guy who's really, really good with technology. Like, you give him something, and he's, he's masterful and able to do a lot of things that I, I don't even... He starts talking, and it's a whole other language. And the two of them entered into this contest. There was um, this vocalist. You may have heard of her. Her name's Taylor Swift. Um, she's kind of popular. And back when she was good, she had this song that was... Um, she had this song that was, you know, called um, Love Story. And she had this, this competition. And the competition was, I want to see out there who can make the best acoustic cover of the song. You put it online, and then all of her fans are going to vote for it. So my friends, Tyler and Brian, were like, yeah, we can do that. Let's give it a shot. So they threw their name in the ring, and out of thousands of entries, they won. And you're like, cool, they won. What'd they win? Well, they won an all-expense-paid trip to New York City, flights included, hotel rooms for each of them, dinner with Taylor Swift, backstage pass, and a whole weekend, all expenses paid. I mean, this was no small prize. I mean, this was a big one, and they were pumped. They were excited, they were ecstatic, ready to go. And the week came, and Brian and Tyler, they were excited, ready, ready to get on. And Tyler told Brian, hey, man, I'm not going to, I'll meet you at the airport. I got some stuff I got to do. Give me a call when you get there. So Brian's like, all right, no big deal. His girlfriend, Brian's girlfriend, drove him to the airport. And when they were getting close, instead of pulling into the drop-off part where his girlfriend was going to drop him off, Brian's girlfriend parked in long-term parking. Brian's like, what is going on? This is weird. Like, you're not going? Are you just, okay, you want to say goodbye? No big deal. She gets out of the car and goes, hey, you need to call Tyler. Goes to the back, opens up the back, and picks out not only Brian's bag, but her own. And Brian's like, what is going on? So he calls Tyler. I asked Tyler later, like, what happened? And basically what Tyler had done is set up the whole thing so that Brian and his girlfriend could go and Tyler wouldn't go. And, and you, just, you should have heard the room. The home goes, ugh. When we talk about stories of humility, that's kind of something that hits at home. Um, I talked to Tyler, why'd you do that, man? You deserve to go on that trip. You won it. You're the one who mixed it. It sounded good. You played guitar. All Brian did was sing. That's not that big of a deal. I, I'm like, wh- why, why, why wouldn't you go? And Tyler said, look, Brian and I are good friends. He said this in passing real quick. And if I went, actually, Tyler would be really angry that I asked him permission, but he wasn't happy that I was telling him this part of the story. Um, Tyler basically said, look, if I went with Brian, a couple years later, we'd talk about it. We'd be excited. We'd have pictures. Maybe when I saw him, because he knew we weren't going to live in the same area, we'd talk about it. But if he can go with his girlfriend, who we both knew they were going to be engaged soon, in fact, they're married, and they'd have memories to tell their kids, their grandkids, and there was a whole lot more where he saw, where he was able to say, man, I want him to have that. This is what Tyler did. Tyler didn't tell anyone that that happened. And so we started seeing pictures on Facebook of Brian and his girlfriend, and we're like, why isn't Tyler there? In fact, when Tyler found out that we all knew, he wasn't happy about it. Now, I'm not saying that because this was like some miraculous secret Santa. Tyler did something that represented humility really well. He looked at Brian and said, I deserve to go on this. I have the right to go on this. I should go on this. But instead, what he did is he said, Brian, I love you, and I want you to have something better, and I want to push you up. Humility is simply this. Humility is thinking of others' needs before your own. Let's pray. Father, you are a good God. And I just, I thank you for sending your son, Jesus. I thank you for the opportunity to get to know him and have a relationship with him. And I thank you that even though he didn't want to do it, he was willing to because he wanted us to know you. God, humility is such a weird thing. Um, God, you, you call us to be humble so that we can be 
in unity with one another so that we can have relationships with other people so that we can, we can share your name. God, I, I, um, I just pray as we go home that, that as we leave that we're able to live in a way that is worthy of the gospel, that, that builds others up and allows them to see you and allows them to be glorified and that we're able, Lord, to just bring all the honor and glory to you that is due. God, we love you. We praise you. We thank you for Jesus for all he's done and thank you for the gospel, the good news. God, we love you and we pray all of this in Jesus' son's name. Amen.